and welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia's podcast. I'm Rhiannon and each week I'll be interviewing women worth listening to and getting them to pass on the six best pieces of advice they've ever been given and the worst piece too. Our guest this week is journalist, broadcaster and eco-lifestyle expert Lucy Siegel. Lucy has recently published her new book, Turning the Tide on Plastic. It's described as an accessible and practical book that not only serves as a much-needed call to arms to end the plastic pandemic, but also gives useful tools on how to make meaningful change in our everyday lives. It can be hard wanting to make those environmental changes, whether that be in plastic or fashion, and knowing how to do it. So this podcast contains loads of great practical advice from Lucy. But we also had a lot of laughs, starting with a discussion about her teenage hair. So over to Lucy. Hi, I'm here with Lucy. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure. Um, You're here to give us your best advice. Mm. But first, I just want to talk to you about the book that you have out at the moment, which is Turning the Tide on Plastic. Yes. So, I mean, it's obviously all about how we can tackle our plastic problem. And I'm just really interested. There's a stat that they put in your press release, which is astonishing, which is if 12 people, so, you know, we have at least 12 listening here, (laughs) adopt your reduce, rethink, refill, reuse approach, we can ditch three to 15,000 items of plastic a year. Yeah. So we use so many items of plastic. We're deluged with it. It's like the the world is vomiting plastic Mm. into our lives. So you and I, because we live in this industrialised economy, we have quite big plastic footprints. In the UK, we're a very supermarket-based economy, uh, particularly in urban areas when you're probably relying on a lot of supermarket local versions, light versions, everything's even more wrapped. It's hard to find unwrapped unless you make a consolidated effort. So basically, um, the good news about that is that you can make a massive dent quite easily. It's the only good thing about having a huge plastic footprint. Yeah, Yeah, but this is where it needs to start because there are a couple of things that always make people kind of sit up and listen. Firstly, by 2050, if we don't do something now, there'll be more bits of plastic in the ocean than fish. Yeah, so that that's a bad one. And then if you think between 2002, 2012, during that decade, more plastic was produced than at any other time on Earth. We need to put a pin in this, you might say, okay, because the plastic pandemic already, they drained a bit of the Thames to do some cleaning and they found like 5,000 wet wipes. Wet wipes are a hidden plastic. A lot of people don't even know they've got plastic in them. A lot of people flush them down their loo, which is like playing Russian roulette. If you want a big plumbing bill, that's a good thing to do. So on and on it goes. So basically it is about taking control of your bin which I, I, I promise you is so liberating and stopping the flow of plastics going into your lives. My aim personally is not to go plastic free because I don't think that is possible. Mm-hmm. My aim is to have good, useful plastics only in my life. Right. And for me, it's about we are the front line of resistance. If we don't stop, there's more coming. $180 billion was invested into new plastic manufacturing off the back of the shale gas boom in the US. We're connecting ourselves to fossil fuels in a very, very unfortunate way at this point in our history. It's t- it sounds terrifying, but what I like about the book is that 
it is this practical that we can turn the tide and it's advice and telling people what they can do and what they should do which I think is really helpful because even when you're conscious of it and worried about it people necessarily still don't know what they're supposed to be doing so yeah so basically I really wanted it to be almost like a discussion like we're having now it's a conversation really somebody's already said to me it feels like you're in my living room I think they meant it in a good way yeah and I will come to your living room as well if you want I'm available (laughs) just to reinforce the points but it's a lot of strategies and it's not just I haven't just formed them based on my own life because I don't have kids for example so therefore I don't have a good understanding of that flow of plastics and the pressure on families so I worked with a lot of families including the proud family in South Manchester hello Louise if you're listening who are absolutely brilliant you know a lot of people have let me go through their bins to develop these strategies for which I'm enormously grateful which sounds weird but it's the (laughs) only way to do it so instead of the reduce reuse recycle mantra we put far too much emphasis on recycling it's not working out here in the UK it's a really big problem with it I have eight R's which don't ask me to say in order because I can't remember them Mm. but it starts with recording the plastic and then recycling is at the very very end and it includes refill reimagine reuse and it's not rocket science Mm. you know we can do this you know we invented this chemistry in the first place Mm. now what comes next so it's about doing what you can to stem the tide of plastic into your home and then if you want to amplifying your action and plugging into a global movement because that's how we get global change. But I do believe, I honestly, fervently believe that we're going to do this. Which is great. And it's a much more positive message than what you see sometimes out there. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think there's any point in in um, stewing in our own juice and sort of saying, oh, we're just in a wave of rubbish, you know, and what, what are we going to do? Stay there. I do think we're very solutions orientated. I'm talking about humans as a species, not just you and me, but <laughs> I think we are too. But it is about how do we turn all our ingenuity and all our problem solving capacities into creating uh, a solution for this problem and we can do it honestly this issue I've, I've covered a lot of issues I've been on the trail of plastic for about 10 years I've covered lots of different environmental issues um, in my time and this is the only one that I honestly I would say 98% of people are concerned about this and ready to do something and are prepared to make small changes and some of those will then you know do big big changes yeah so we have more on plastic later but we're going to go through your piece of advice which you've given which I love because they're really varied and really fun (laughs) I'm a a very varied person (laughs) (laughs) and the first piece is about your hair so tell me what and you've said it's outstanding advice I think this is possibly the best advice that I've ever been given and so I still have problematic hair so my hair is very thick it's very wiry I'm not sure where it comes from. There's a, there's a lot of discussion about the the origins of my hair. Um, and during the 1980s, I grew up in South County Dublin, where the wind and the rain and the humidity mm-hmm. conspired to turn my hair into what my friend uh, Celia describes as an isosceles triangle shape. <laughs> and it was like frizz, but... I don't know. I've never seen a substance like it. And it was it was really extraordinary. And conditioner wasn't really a thing yeah. at the time. So honestly, I used to walk through near where I went to school and people would come out of their houses and they'd be like, oh, I see what you mean, Mary. No. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was really like, it was a real talking point. So I left Dublin and moved to Manchester and I was at a very scary school for me because it was huge and I was in the sixth form and I, I didn't, you know, I was, I was really like shy and everything. Anyway, it was 
there was a clique of kind of cool girls who were also quite hard girls mm. and they were like you know one they all wanted to be like singers or models or whatever anyway I didn't dare speak to them and then one day I was like loitering by the radiator as always mm. with my huge bouffant <laughs> hair and this girl one of these like you know one of these amazing goddesses mm. like strode over to me and she was like really purposeful she strode over to me I thought god she's gonna hit me or something <laughs> And um, she stood in front of me and she just looked at me directly in the eyes. And she said to me, you know, when you wash your hair and I was like, yeah, she had don't brush it, let it dry naturally, turned on her heels, walked off. And I was like, oh, my God, as soon as I got home, did what she said. And I got these kind of amazing corkscrew curls. Mm. Well, they were amazing for the time. Yeah. Okay. That's everything's got context, and I think it changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was called Rachel, right. and she used to be like so cool that she actually, in the holidays, went to a recording studio and laid down some tracks. Oh, she was that girl. She was that girl. Yeah. So I don't know what happened to her, yeah. but I only know what happened to my hair, which is it got better. <laughs> That's incredible. Looking very smooth today. Yeah, well, it's my life's work. It's yeah. made, most of my effort goes on my hair and then the remainder goes on solving the plastic pandemic. That's a good split of time. I yeah, think. it really is. <laughs> Did it change your confidence though? Like it, we laugh, but you know, we talk a lot about Gra- at Grazia about how it is important how you look and how you feel sometimes. Yeah, I think it changed other people's perception of me. So I don't know. I mean, I've probably not unwrapped it to the extent that I probably need to. But I always felt like I was okay in myself. I was very accepting of myself and my weird hair. But it was such a relief not to have to worry about it. I could assimilate. Mm-hmm. And I went to lots of different... I went to 15 different schools wow. in in. Uh, Britain and Ireland so I had to do a lot of fitting in and the hair meant that I couldn't fit in Mm. and now I could although it was right at the end of my school career so I didn't actually need to anymore (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it helped with a whole variety of things and I think it once you because because I'd had such like crazy hair and of course you know I was the archetypal musician and flute player and geek and everything Mm. it was all adding up to complete shame (laughs) it gave me a way of accessing other stuff Mm like you know urban music or fashion yeah and it gave me a whole different dimension into my life it's not that I you know I'm still not very big on conformity I find it impossible to conform but it was um it's it was a bit of a barrier I suppose Mm. like it was so such massive hair it was literally physically (laughs) a barrier Oh, uh, like I don't think kids these days understand the pain of looking back at old photographs no. of yourself when you were young. Pre-straightener, yeah, no yeah. straighteners. I mean, you know, no serum, no, nothing. Yeah. Like literally, nothing, nothing. Mm. And I still had, especially in Ireland, because a lot of people have troublesome hair in Ireland or used <laughs> to. Not now. You go to Dublin and everyone's got like this blonde, flaxen, straight hair, and you're like, that's not real. <laughs> and it's it's just like you know, it was just. um something that a lot of people struggled with in the weather as well the weather was a problem (laughs) um yeah so it just I mean it it just it it did boost my confidence for sure I love your second piece of advice because it's just super practical and you're passing it on like Rachel did to you which is about where to keep your trainers and exercise yes so this was actually this is more contemporary advice so a few years ago I had been really, really active, really fit. I'd done loads of sports. And then 
I just found myself like unable to just motivate myself mm. to do anything and I work in tv a lot and everyone's always doing triathlons or throwing themselves off a mountain or you know raising like a zillion pounds yeah. <clears throat> and I was just thinking oh my god like firstly I was just overcome like awestruck by these superhuman feats mm. but at the same time it felt really hard just to go and do a normal workout like for a normal person yeah. And I actually said to one of my colleagues, I just can't get do any exercise at the moment. And he said to me, get your trainers. Mm-hmm. He, first of all, he said, do you have trainers? <laughs> he was like, put them next to your bed. When you wake up in the morning, you do need fitness apparel. Yes. Like, you know, Put that on, put your trainers on, go out the door, whatever the weather, run for 10 minutes in any direction. No okay. pressure, just get your legs moving, get your feet moving. And that is the key for me. Mm. Everyone has different ways in to exercise, but that for me is to get your feet moving and get your legs moving. Mm. Um, And it works. So, you know, within a really short time, within months, I had entered the London Marathon. Really? Yeah. And, you know, I did it. I didn't do a good time or anything. But get your feet moving, get outside and also get into the British weather. I mean, it's beautiful at the moment, but it's really, really, I don't think enough of us go outside enough. And honestly, 10 minutes, because we hear all the time, don't we, as a non-runner, just do 10 minutes and do 10 minutes. And did you really feel it build up and it, it just just clicked for you? Yeah, it works. And basically, you're waking up a lot of your muscles as well. And just being out and, you know, first of all, you can't run to the lamppost, whatever. No one's going to watch you. Yeah. No one's judging you because now everyone's doing stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you, it is about building it up and, you know, very slowly. And you go at your, you, you go at your pace. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I learned very, very early on. I did a half marathon and there were signs all around going uh let me get this right now um my pace not yours or something like that so it's like you know you've always got to run at your own speeds because that's what happens people kind of blast off they're super competitive with themselves and they put so much pressure on themselves Mm -hmm. and then they stop doing it but I've just had another sabbatical where I didn't run for ages Mm -hmm. and then you know I got out there yesterday and just just went for it and you notice the change in your mental health as much physical health? Much more in my mental health than my physical health. Right. I, yeah. I notice very little change in my physical <laughs> self these days. But I do realise that um, actually it's the rhythm of it and the problem solving is, is what I get from, from running. I feel like I'm really talking up my running now. I'm so slow. Well, you've done a marathon, so, rubbish. so you get to do that for the rest of your life. I think that's like the a blag you get, definitely. Yeah, but you do need to, you, you know, you can get into that cycle and it's really powerful. It's like an amazing sort of mental detox, I think. Mm. Um, whatever whatever um, length or distance you want to go. For me, I found that I'm I'm a long distance runner. Yeah. And your third piece of advice is also very practical around exercise and it's what you should wear underneath your clothes. Yes, so these are sort of connected. But yeah. but during the 90s, <laughs> everything's during the 90s, <laughs> I was an aerobics instructor. Um, were you were you really how long were you an aerobics instructor for, for years wow. like while I had a job I had a job in a textiles factory in South London and in the evenings I used to go and teach aerobics mm. so which meant I burned a lot of calories so I was constantly eating at my desk which used to drive my line manager absolutely <laughs> insane because I was like a gerbil yeah. I was always eating because I couldn't get enough calories in and it for me I, I really liked music so I was really into house music and stuff like that and I liked the beat and I liked the fact that you know you had these big classes full of women and you 
you're moving the same direction and it was just really fun mm. but you know to be fair I did a, a week's course training to be an aerobics instructor I didn't really know that much about the human body and I probably shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't have been put in charge of people's this physical is the welfare. This 90s story ever. I'm now so 90s happen, yeah. I'm just the 90s <laughs> and now I go to classes and they're so people are so well trained yeah. and they've invested that you know that it's their profession the fitness industry wasn't like that then and the classes are so good and they're so um woman centric like in those days it was basically taking exercise for men and converting it it was still very keep fit which is a phrase I hate anyway so I was doing my course and then I was doing some training afterwards starting to teach these aerobics lessons and there was a girl I think she was actually a neuroscientist who was uh, an aerobics teacher on the circuit. And she wow. was hilariously funny. And she came up to me. She sort of looked me up and down. She looked at my rather sizable chest. Mm. And she said to me, always wear two sports bras. <laughs> Double up. Two? Yeah. She was right. like, you know what I mean. Okay. And I'm glad I did that. <laughs> Do you still wear two always? They're better, yeah. They're better now. They're not. Mm. This is a myth. Yeah. It's a myth that sports bras have got any better. <laughs> they are the same, if not worse. Really? Yes. <laughs> They're useless. Mm. If I wasn't busy with the plastic thing, then I would be designing sports bras. That's, that's for like when you solve plastics. <laughs> yeah, when I solve plastics, <laughs> I'll solve uh, movement in that area. Someone needs to do it. You're right. They do. Yeah. Honestly, some of the things that are put out on the market as sports bras, mm. they're just a joke. Yeah, that little kind of little crop top's not going to do anything. No. 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 <laughs> Useless. Uh, your fourth piece of advice. It sounds simple, but it, it, it kind of means more. It says you play the ball is what you've said. What do you mean by that? Okay, so when I was in my uh, sort of late 20s, I started to play tennis very late because I never played at school. And I actually really liked it, but I really found that I was really competitive and I was really angry. In fact, I have a scar on my leg where I hit myself in the leg with my own racket with such force (laughs) that I actually dented my own leg. So I had to like think, why am I so angry? And it was like I was projecting all this anger. Anyway, somebody said to me, play the ball. And I, because I used to, I think in a lot of sport, you get very, especially if you're opposite somebody, you can start to think very evil thoughts about that person and you project all your negativity onto them. Mm-hmm. In tennis, if you subscribe to this philosophy, you're just playing the ball, not that person. That person is kind of neutral. That person, your anger has no place on that person. Mm-hmm. It is all about this little tennis ball, this little luminous thing flying through the air. And for some reason, I found that a really meditative concept and mm-hmm. I found it to be really helpful in other areas of my life mm-hmm. where I might personalise issues or I might start to think, oh, that person's my my enemy or foe a lot of the time it's just that you're in a situation you know you're in a both in a situation you might be on opposite sides of the spectrum you find it a lot with activism around environmental issues or whatever they are there will be two sides to this debate Mm. and you're playing the issue not the not the other person yeah that's hard to remember though if someone's totally opposite to you I mean you must get a lot of naysayers and kind of like you know anti-climate change people and and you're coming up against big oh, corporations as well oh the anti-climate change people they're just mad yeah. I mean that's, come on I mean it's a settled science I yeah. mean you know there's like what are that like 1999 reports by peer-reviewed mm. scientists and then there's two which have been shown <laughs> to be funded 
by you know pro global warming bodies yeah. i mean you know there's lots of yeah there's lots of debate but i think where there's genuine genuine dissent mm-hmm. um so for example say if you take the plastics debate a lot of people might be resistant to change because they fear change lots mm-hmm. of people fear change or it might be socioeconomic it might be financial it might be that they don't live anywhere near a, a lovely plastic free very woke yeah. bulk buy store uh you know so there are lots of different reasons why people are resistant to change mm. and i feel that most reasonable people if you explain the issue mm. uh and their place and give them lots of a variety of solutions and a variety of ways in mm. rather than saying this is bad you're bad you're evil I do think that um, I kind of don't like that whole really, really polarised debate. And every time you go on a TV show, it's set up like a Punch and Judy show. Yeah. Especially around climate change. It's so pointless. Yeah. Is the need for this. Uh, we have a strange idea about balance, don't we? Yeah. As if balance yeah. is like yeah. finding someone saying something interesting and then finding someone saying the opposite. Yeah. Which, you know, unfortunately, you know, media organisations. I mean, it's important that we are. There's some amazing reporting and some amazing, very clear sighted reporting that manages to be completely unbiased. But climate change is a settled science. Mm. So every time they bring out that balance argument, which fortunately the BBC stopped doing now, mm. but then they used to wheel on some foaming at the mouth lunatic or someone <laughs> who was clearly being paid by mm. whichever oil company or whatever. I mean, it was it was just a joke. Mm. You know, and then you did feel like you're in a pantomime. So what's the point? Yeah. Because personally, I cannot impart information that's useful to people if it's just a caricature. Yeah. I'm not a person who can just run through the lines. Mm. I feel it. And every time I speak is different mm-hmm. because I want to communicate with that audience. Not, not you know, I don't have a pre-prepared Mm. statement that I can banter around with Piers Morgan or whatever no and if you're having to tackle a Piers or someone like that you're not really discussing the issue that you came to discuss really are you because you're too busy batting away allegations yeah and it's yeah it's just yes can you be bothered Mm. I remember years ago doing uh, one of those Sunday morning programs with um, (laughs) well they were it was a little bit livelier then um, with a with a friend of mine and when we got there, first of all, you have to get at 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. to drive to the studio in Birmingham. And then we were surrounded by people who were shouting like they didn't uh, hated gay marriage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she just looked at me and I just looked at her and she was like, what are we doing here? And she was like, I can't like I can't get really worked up about this because mm-hmm. their position is so preposterous. It's really hard to like uh, get equally worked up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a diff- and that's a difficult thing as well, I think. Mm. Your fifth piece of advice does does talk about plastic, and it's about what your granddad said to you. So a, a while ago, I presume he spoke to you about plastic. Says when you were a child, when I was seven really? or eight, yes. And this is why my whole book started from this point, really. Mm. Um, so I had a hundred percent approval rating with my grandparents. Okay. Everything I did was absolutely brilliant and whatever, you know. And then I always used to go and stay with them in the summer. And I went to stay with them and 
I can't really remember. I think it was like a drinking bottle that I had that my neighbours brought me back from Disneyland and it like had a plastic Mickey Mouse or whatever and a straw and a blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then I also, to top off my look, I had those, I had like a headband with some plastic <laughs> protruding antennae from it. Dealey just, bopper. Dealey bopper. Yeah. I was just covered in plastic, <laughs> clutching a Barbie, Lego, tra- you know, everything was plastic. Yeah. And something came on the television for a new plastic thing that you could put in your washing machine um like a dosing ball which now we all use and it was an, it was a new thing and i said oh that's cool and my granddad said that is not cool <laughs> my granddad said plastic is made from oil and oil is a precious resource we wow. should only be using plastic for things that are very important to us and he used to go to the supermarket he lived in chester in the northwest mm. and he used to unwrap his groceries there at the checkout and leave the plastic behind he would never take a plastic bag really i was used to think it was really weird and really embarrassing and the weird thing was that he worked for an oil company i was going to say where did that knowledge come yeah. from but yeah yeah so day in day out he was mm. dealing with um he was a scientific translator so right. he would um he would see a lot of reports and translate them into different languages or whatever so he had a very good understanding of uh oil where it was deposited mm. and at the time and throughout the 70s, they were talking about peak oil. So when we would run out of oil. So mm. he was coming at it from a slightly different position, but it planted a seed in my head. And I think I've always had this curiosity ever since. Everything we wear, everything we consume, mm. I always want to know the story behind it. It's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> is it exhausting or is it interesting? How it's really interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, in journalism, the classic advice that we're all given mm. is follow the money. Mm. I've always followed the oil, which I think is is also money. Yeah. But it's, a, it's the kind of environmental route to a lot of stories. Mm. And I think what we've been able to do um, as writers who are interested in the limits that the planet is setting or needs to set... Mm. We have been able to use everyday products to make those stories really come to life mm. over the last few years. When I first came into writing about the environment, it was just it was it was very abstract. Yeah, and I think being able to relate it to people's everyday lives um, has been a game changer. Mm. And of course, now people come up to me all the time and they're like, "Is this all right? Is this okay?" <laughs> Which it's often a very complex yeah. set of situations, but it's nice to be able to give them some advice. Mm. And that's what I've been able to do with the plastic pandemic, mm. because my research may be subliminally going on since I was seven years of age, <laughs> means that I feel like I have an authority. Mm. Which is important these days because not everybody talking about something has an authority. No, and it's hard to talk about stuff when you don't have an authority or you've got a bit of authority, but in a very niche area. With plastics, I guess we all have a bit of an authority because we all use so much and we Mm. see it all the time. But that makes it easy for me because people can grasp what I'm talking about very quickly. Mm. Can I ask you about something people do also know you for, which is fashion and looking at ethical fashion Mm -hmm. and where our fashion is coming from? Are we getting better? All the brands claim they're getting better. Of course they are. It's a great PR Mm. move for them. Do you Mm. think we're getting better with our fashion? No. No. I think a lot of the brands are leading us down a blind alley, actually. I mean, we've got a situation now where in the past few weeks we've had brands luxury and fast fashion talking about how they've had to burn stock because they're producing 
producing so much inventory and of course there's so many clothes coming onto the market but this is this is not an environmental statement this is a more of a, a problem for designers you know and 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 brands that everyone's telling me they find it difficult to shift product anyway so it is a real problem that overproduction glut is something that's a bit like food waste mm-hmm. it is symptomatic of a problem in the system, of a sick system. So I think there are incremental changes. There's a lot more small brands around. There's a lot more ethical brands around. There's a lot of ingenuity. And I think that's coming from people, younger generations moving into the fashion industry and wanting to do something a different way, seeing, seeing it failing and having different values. But I think overall, the landscape is still dominated by these sclerotic uh, not quite working systems mm. of production and until we take a hammer to those and reinvent them I think we're going to be in a problematic zone because at the moment it does feel like as you kind of touched on the um, the onus is on the consumer to shop in the right places mm. to look into everything whereas really I think for big change don't we need the big brands to make those changes yeah I mean it would be incredible if they did but mm. they probably if truth be told, they'd be offering you a different product. Mm. So a lot of people will say to me with fashion, for example, can can I get this, whatever this is, but ethical? And it's it probably won't be exactly the same mm. because it may not be as fashionable because a part of an ethical fashion season is that you might have to put your order in, you know, three or four months ahead so mm. that the factory's got time to plan. The problem is the system's very quick as well or it might be more expensive, or it might be made of a different fibre and one that doesn't mm. tuck you in at the place that you like, or doesn't, you know, doesn't. And it's about getting used to different things as well. Different systems bring different products. But, I mean, the advice reminds the same for me from consumers. Only buy what you love. Mm. And you shouldn't really have anything that you don't love. So I've always used the 30 wears rule. So I I don't care where you buy it from. And I understand people have got different price points and different places that they shop and can get to or different aesthetics. Mm. But can you honestly commit to that 30 times? If not, you can't have it. Yeah, (laughs) that's a really good rule. And that's just a really key piece of advice that people can keep in their head. Oh, it's so that's so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find people, your friends, your family being careful what they wear around you or worried that you're going to say, oh, why have you got that from there? And. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the room goes a bit quiet, mm. but and and now now what I hear before I enter a room is a lot of rustling. I know what you're doing. <laughs> you're hiding the plastic. I will find it. Yeah, um, but it is quite funny. <laughs> and then with food as well, like ages ago, I went to stay with a friend of mine who had been at college with. There was, you know, there was like three or four of us who used to hang out at college, mm. and then we all went to stay at her house. And she said to a mutual friend, "What does she eat?" Like, what do I eat? Like, I'm not an alien. Yeah. You know, and it was just, it was just really funny. But yeah, it's all of those things. It it can be, because consumerism, and this is one of the, this is one of the sad things. It's like, consumerism has hooked us in such a way that it starts to define you. And then when somebody says anything or critiques something about anything that you're doing, yeah. you can become really defensive because, um, you know, <laughs> nobody likes to be critiqued. And once you feel something's part of your personality, mm. and if you shop in a pla- in a particular place, 
you know, you might feel that that brand comes to represent who you are. Mm. It doesn't. Yeah. And actually, one of the good things now is that people are so disloyal to brands. (laughs) That's actually brilliant for my purposes. And it gets us over that you know over that quite quickly and also I do try and do it in a very human way we're all so fallible you know we're all hypocrites we're all fallible and like you said before I don't think all the owners should be on our shoulders anyway mm-hmm. so I try and go as high up the uh the brand chain as I can yeah. there's people making serious money out of all of this yeah. and they need to be accountable yeah I don't know how I can link to your sixth piece of advice. So I'm just going to have to get you to (laughs) explain it. Oh, this is my puzzling advice. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking in in preparation for this, I was just thinking how uh, about weird bits of advice I've been given. And I felt like I had, I could have done with more advice. Like people could have given me more (laughs) advice in my life. And what what is it about me that means that people don't give me much advice? Anyway, one really puzzling bit of advice was I was about to come to London to go to university I was 17 and um my parents had some friends round and um I think his name was Rob he was a really nice guy he's kind of elderly uh, architect or something and he suddenly said at dinner he's he kind of looked at me pointed me across the table and he said don't get into crack <laughs> with you know he was yeah. he was really really fervent in his belief that I should not get into crack yeah. and I don't know. I just thought this was unnecessary <laughs> because as I've already described to you with the kind of, you know, frizzy hair and the, uh, maybe it's because I'd stopped having frizzy hair, but, and, and, and my music and all, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. I don't know. I probably wasn't high risk yeah. for the crack lifestyle, <laughs> but I just love it when, um, when people are like going away to college or going away, mm. blah, 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 that this kind of unwarranted advice comes their way. Yeah. Maybe it saved me. I don't know. I don't. I've never got in. I never got into crack. Okay, so maybe it's maybe it's just saved for the me. record. Yeah, just for the record. It reminds me of on the Frank Ocean's Blonde album. He has a track where it's just like a mum leaving a voicemail about don't smoke weed, and it goes on for ages, and it's brilliant. I think it's just universal, isn't it? It is universal. But I did. Yeah, like, don't smoke weed is good advice, maybe you know, probably. But you know, I'm not. I don't want to get into what drugs people have and haven't done. But crack was just saying the bar so high and also it sort of says that everything else is okay apart from crack yeah yeah it's also quite dangerous it's puzzling advice it's dangerous advice but i love it and i always remember that moment Mm, that's brilliant (laughs) i feel like we've already had some terrible advice but we do like we do like to end on the worst piece of advice you've ever been given and what was that i want to be careful here because i don't want to identify the person who gave me this because they're such a brilliant person Mm -hmm. so a few years ago, so I, I, I became a, a writer first or started working in magazines first and I loved journalism and writing stuff. And I've always thought that the environment needed that lens mm-hmm. because there was a lot of enthusiastic amateurs or people who liked to talk about the science but didn't know how to make anything Mm. palatable or interesting or entertaining we're all in the entertainment industry at the end of the day which I know is difficult for scientists um so anyway I started to specialize in eco living so I was like an agony aunt for the environment if you like and um uh an editor a very senior very respected editor found out I was doing this and rushed over to me and said god you know 
get yourself out of that as soon as you can really yeah you know it's boring it's worthy you want to you know you want to you want to forge on with a bright career you know you could write about I don't know like uh, entertainment yeah you could write about celebrities and I thought oh god you know maybe this is really bad and I I did get a lot of flack at the start for it Mm. being a really kind of worthy proposition anyway um about two months later I think my initial column was nominated for a British Press Award. And it was like, everyone's like, everyone should be doing this. It's really important. And then uh, the, this uh, very senior editor rang me up in a, in a great panic saying, you didn't take that advice I gave you, did you? Because it was yeah. terrible, terrible advice. It's like the worst <laughs> advice ever. So they already called it. And I was like, no, I didn't take it. Yeah. But that column ran for 14 years, which in an age of mm, <laughs> longevity... Crazy. And paying the bills, you know, that was great, you know. That's amazing, isn't it? And I think we do forget that it's only recently that it has become cool to be eco. You know, there was the kind of 90s view of it that it wasn't necessarily that cool it goes in and out to be honest you know mm. after the recession obviously you know a lot of that stuff seemed really too superfluous when people are just trying to like stay on yeah. stay on two feet so it, it it does go in and out and you, you do have to worry you know you worry about that but I think now it's so consolidated there are so many great environmental writers there's a lot of people online there's a lot of people who do incredible work especially around climate change um uh on social media for example and there is a a live discussion day and night about how the planet's changing and our response to it none of that existed then so I feel like we're in a much healthier place as far as discussion goes and applying pressure which is what we all really need to do there's lots of different ways of being an activist as well you know it's not everyone's not a placard waving Mm. and I think we've got a much more nuanced subtle understanding that you should match your activism to your temperament these days definitely well we're glad you didn't take that advice Lisa. (laughs) thanks very much thank you thanks so much to lucy i absolutely loved chatting to her as you can tell by all my laughing I think she's a really realistically inspiring person to take advice from. She's not overly preachy. She just kind of has all those facts that make you want to do something to make a change. Of course, you can get more advice from her in her book, Turning the Tide on Plastic, which is out now. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please do subscribe. Please rate us, review us. It really helps us spread the word. We look forward to seeing you next week for more advice from women worth listening to.